listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ and the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. The fact of the matter is that you need to understand the kind of a person that God uses. If you don't understand what kind of a person God uses, in the course of your journey, your spiritual pilgrimage, you're going to get discouraged. If you get discouraged, the tendency is that you're going to give up. And you're going to have a faulty view of God. You're going to have a faulty view of yourself, a faulty view of others. And very few people who have a faulty view of God, a faulty view of themselves, a faulty view of others, go very far in their spiritual journey. It's really important that you understand what kind of a person God uses. And in this particular passage of Scripture, by the time we're done, you're going to have a much clearer picture of the kind of person God uses, and you're going to be able to identify one way or the other with the kind of person that God uses. And that's going to make an eternally significant difference in your life. Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 12 in our Father's Word. In these days he, speaking of Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from then twelve whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Verse 17. And he, Jesus, came down with them and stood on a level place, and a great crowd of his disciples with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Jesus has spent an entire night now on a mountain praying. We know by this particular time, and we're only in chapter 6 of Luke's gospel, that prayer has become, or is demonstrated by the writer of Luke's gospel. Prayer is strategic. It's central to Jesus. You can't separate prayer from Jesus. You can't separate Jesus from prayer. This idea of being intimate with his heavenly father, intimate with his father, is really dyed in the wool for Jesus. And here, we, I get a picture again that now Jesus is going off to a mountain as a regular habit in these days it says verse 12 he went out to the mountain to pray this was his customary habit prior to this we've seen that jesus is known to go to not just a desolate place but desolate places he knows how to find a place where he can get away with god we know that he gets up early in the morning while it's still dark in other instances and he prays he seeks his father he seeks intimacy with his father and so it's not a coincidence that we see Jesus doing amazing, wonderful, overflowing things. Things that come out of Jesus' mouth. Things that come out of Jesus' body. Here it says that power was coming out of him. Jesus demonstrates intimacy with his Father. How many of us have spent an entire night praying to God? Now, some of us have climbed mountains. I climbed one of the three sisters when I lived in Oregon. And almost died in the process because I was not in shape. You can climb a mountain, 
But the question is, do you battle with your heavenly father in prayer for the things that draw near to his heart? That Jesus comes down off of that mountain and he's with the 12 that he has deliberately chosen as a consequence of seeking his father on that mountain. He comes down off of that mountain and the crowds gather. They come from all over the place, as the writer of scripture says. They're surrounding Jesus and he's teaching He's proclaiming the word of God. People are being healed. Physical healings happening because of Jesus. Demons are being cast out of people because of Jesus. And it says here in the last verse that we read, in verse 19, the crowd sought to touch him. Wouldn't you choose? Wouldn't you seek to touch Jesus? Because the reason is, for power came out from him and healed them all. Is emanating from Jesus. Wouldn't you want to drop everything that you're doing and go and see Jesus? Because power is coming out of him. And when people touch Jesus, their entire life is changed. When people are around Jesus, their entire life is changed. This is why we prioritize preaching and teaching the word of God. Because when you hear about Jesus... When you hear the good news of salvation and forgiveness of sins through Jesus, when you understand and you get a clearer picture of how Jesus operates and what Jesus does, your life changes. And that's what it's about, that God literally will touch your life. Now, there are some people today who think that they can expect that God's going to do the same things today as what we read in the book of Acts, for example. That at any moment, God should do, must do, is required to do everything and anything that we expect expect him to do. Now, they get hung up on that passage of scripture in Hebrews, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And they will point to a scripture like that and say, see, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So everything that we see in the Bible at all times for all people at any time should be happening right here and now. Well, that's taken out of context, really. Because do we have a temple in Israel today? We don't. Clearly, the Bible is not presenting that Jesus operates in the same ways for all people at all times. That's not what the scriptures teach. That's not what's being presented here. It's not what we should be hanging our hat on, expecting God to do the exact same things in my life, in the exact same ways he does them in your life. Ours is a God who manifests his presence, manifests his glory, however he wishes, whenever he wishes, for his glory. The teaching of scripture is that the person, the identity of Jesus Christ never changes. Jesus Christ never changes. But it is up to his beck and call. It is up to Jesus' judgment call about how he he manifests his glory. There are times when God might heal you here, this side of eternity. God might heal somebody else this side of eternity. But eventually, healing is for everybody who knows Jesus. Whether it's this side of eternity, this side of glory, or the other. The person, the identity of Jesus Christ never changes. Of course, God demonstrates his glory, manifests his glory according to his glory. Have you not noticed that oftentimes your mind, I know this is true with me, my mind is out of sync with what God really wants to do? Have you not noticed that you tend to, I tend to put God in a box and have him all figured out and expect him to do A, B, and C, one, two, three? Jackson 5 sang about it for a different reason. Some of you understand that and you're displaying your age by how you respond one way or the other. 
A, B, C, easy as one, two, three, A, right? You understand what I'm saying? How many of you understand what I'm saying? Thank you. <clears throat> but regardless of what you believe about how God manifests himself, the truth is that Jesus continues to heal. Jesus continues to move. Jesus has power emanating from him. And he has the power that you need, more importantly, the power that he needs to manifest his glory through you. Wouldn't you have dropped everything to go and to see Jesus, to hear him, to listen to him, and to be one of those people who could say yes, Power was coming out of him. Somehow power was coming out of Jesus as he's down on a level place now with the 12. A few on one side, a few on the other, and out of Jesus in the center, this power is emanating. Demons have to bow their knee. Demons have to squeal and hit the road running. Demons have to bow to Jesus. Sickness has to bow to Jesus. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is still the same. He knows knows how to meet your need, but more importantly, Jesus knows how to meet not just your need, but his Father's need. See, the interesting thing is that Jesus spends an entire night praying, spending time with his Father, coming down off of the mountain, and when he comes down off the mountain, he's going to make one of the most significant strategic calls that any leader could make because success requires a successor. Success requires a successor. And Jesus has picked, as a result of spending that entire night on the mountain with his heavenly father, he's chosen 12 out of all the disciples. We know that a disciple is one who follows. That's the definition of a disciple. But an apostle is one who is sent. There's a difference. The idea is that this is like a king who has commissioned admirals in his fleet to take their fleet, to take the king's fleet and to go into uncharted territory, to go into new area and to take that ground for the king whom they represent. That's the idea of an apostle, one who is sent out with that kind of an authority. And these are the ones, the 12, are the ones that Jesus is going to entrust all of his teaching, his three years of ministry, The one-on-one time that he spent with Peter. The one-on-three time that Jesus spent with Peter, James, and John. The intimate time that Jesus spent with all of the twelve, repeatedly. The very giving of Jesus' own life, the shedding of his own blood. Jesus is entrusting his entire vision, his entire mission that was determined by God the Father before eternity even began. And eternity passed before time began. All of that was given to Jesus. All of that was determined in eternity past by God the Father. And now Jesus, after a whole night of prayer on the mountain, has selected the The 12 who are going to pick up the baton after him. Success requires a successor. These are going to be the church planters. The gates of hell will not prevail against the mission of Jesus, the vision of Jesus. He just needs some mere mortals into the hands of which he's going to entrust this valuable, priceless mission. And one of the 12 that Jesus has entrusted this this to is a man by the name of Judas Iscariot. People have debated, people have postulated, studied, where does that name Iscariot come from? Some think it has to deal with his geographic location. That that's where he hailed from, a place that sounds like Iscariot. But others have postulated that perhaps the name Iscariot seems to have some some commonality between other words in the language that have to deal with being abandoned. 
Yes, a thief. How about that? Not only a thief, but also an assassin, a liar, and a false one. All of those words would be true when spoken of Judas Iscariot who stole from the money bag and helped himself as he pleased as we read elsewhere in the gospel accounts. This is the one who literally was an assassin betraying the son of man with a kiss. And Jesus deliberately, specifically chose him. And what are we reminded of in this? See, you've got to be careful in your life. I began down this slippery slope in my pilgrimage, thinking that one of the reasons why I pray is so that I get it right. I want to pray so that I get it right. If I don't pray, I might get it wrong. But if I pray, I will get it right. But my definition of right was to avoid pain, was to be uh, able to avoid difficulty, to avoid hardship. See, many of us define right as a life of comfort and convenience. And if we're not careful, we can begin to seek God so that God would make our life more comfortable, more convenient. Listen, if Jesus was interested in his own life being comfortable and convenient, he never would have chosen a backstabber named Judas Iscariot. And guess what? Jesus didn't get it wrong. He got it right. We're reminded of the sovereignty of God because Jesus understood that the purpose of his life was to glorify his heavenly father regardless of whether it was comfortable or convenient for him. One of the marks of somebody who is truly sent out by Jesus, a true disciple who then gets sent out, not a pew sitter, not somebody who's sitting on the sidelines watching other people who are being sent out. There's a sense in which every single one of us should be a missionary, one who is sent, called by God, given the great commission. As you're going, make disciples, people who follow Jesus. What would happen to our whole church? What would happen to the United States of America? What would happen to churches? around the world of people began to see themselves not just as Christians but as missionaries we'd have an absolute fundamental shift we'd have people getting saved in workplaces that otherwise wouldn't get saved we'd have people getting saved in neighborhoods who otherwise wouldn't get saved we'd have entire geographic regions being changed for the glory of God changed and transformed dramatically fundamentally because when you have somebody who sees themselves as somebody who's sent by God on a mission to lead other people to be a obedient to Jesus, that changes everything about you. You've got to be very careful, though, that the purpose of drawing near to your Heavenly Father in prayer is not just to ask God, even subtly, spare me from pain, spare me from difficulty. No, Jesus' prayer was nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours, at the expense of his own pain. A missionary... A disciple, somebody who is truly called by God and sent, and you are if you've given your life to Christ. And if you haven't, you're about to do that and to be sent on the greatest mission you'll ever undertake. What you have to understand is that it's not about getting it right as it relates to convenience and comfort. It's about the glory of God. 
Once you settle the issue about the purpose of your life, once you firmly understand and embrace that the purpose of my life is to glorify God, even in the midst of pain. Once you understand that the purpose of your life is to glorify God, that you have your job to glorify God, not just make money. That you married your spouse to glorify God, not just have your personal needs met. Even though that's a wonderful byproduct of following God. Some of us might be thinking, I married the wrong person. I didn't get it right. I should have prayed longer. Listen, sometimes because you pray, you will have greater difficulty. Those of you who are wondering about your choice of a spouse should be comforted right now with that. The purpose of your life is to give glory to God. And when you seek God, when you do the will of your Father, when you are intimate with Him, it might mean that you will have pain because you are intimate. It might mean that you will have difficulty. The whole idea of being a missionary, the whole idea of being one who is sent is that you go into enemy territory. It gets painful on the front lines. It's difficult to be at war. It's painful. It's agonizing. It's heartbreaking. There are casualties. But the glory of God will never wane. You just have to commit yourself to saying, Yes, Jesus, I want you to use me for your glory. I don't want to be on the outside looking in. I don't want to be at the 50-yard line while somebody else is running the ball down for a touchdown. I want you to use me because the joy in being used by God surpasses any and all difficulty you and I will ever face in the totality of our lives. The problem is we don't really believe that. We've got to believe that. We have to believe that the purpose of my life is to glorify God. The purpose of your life as a follower of Jesus Christ is to glorify God. Jesus understood it. And when you seek God, when you submit to him, when you ask him, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven in my life, it might mean you're opening the door to pain. But what you're opening the door to really, which trumps pain every time, is the glory of God, which will be forever. So Jesus deliberately picks someone who will be a backstabber. It's part of the plan of God. People get hung up. Did Jesus choose that position or was he put in that position by God? And some of us in this camp would say he was predestined to do that at the expense of his free will. And others here would say, well, no, he had free will and it was his ultimate decision. Listen, we try to understand the things of God as mere mortals. Have you not noticed that you are a mere mortal? A little humility when it comes to theology will go a very long way. All I know is that all things work for the glory of God. I might as well buy into that hook, line, and sinker because that reality will not change whether or not I agree or disagree. All things happen for the glory of God. Not so that we say, well, I guess it doesn't matter. Que sera, sera. No, it's not what will be, will be. That's fatalism and feudalism. Back to this idea of spending a whole night on a mountain praying. Jesus said, my house will be called the house of prayer for all nations. 
It's good that we are going into the nations doing missions work. Some of you have gone to other nations, other places and done missions work. I've done it. But the church, the body of Christ, needs to be characterized as a house of prayer. And I don't think that we have hit the bullseye on that yet here at Grace Fellowship. I don't think that we've hit that bullseye, if I might say, for those listening by podcast. In many of the churches that we have planted and that we're growing throughout the country. See, man can do a lot, but God can outdo him every single time. There's a sense in which this church and other churches around the country and this church this fall, as we meet with the elders, senior staff, we're going to be talking about strategic planning. One of those things that's central, which I am going to be responsible before God. I'm going to give an account before God on whether or not... I led in the right direction. We as elders, senior staff, we're going to be responsible before God about whether or not we took this church in the right direction. And I'll tell you what, any church that's going in any direction apart from prayer being the epicenter, intimacy with God is going in the wrong direction. It takes time to, to turn a large ship. We're a large fellowship, aren't we? But it's now time that we start to focus our sights with laser precision on intimacy with the Father as we gather together this fall. This fall, 2013, as we gather, when we begin to call out to God and give Him what He died for. Everything that Jesus envisioned when he hung on the cross is centered upon his people being intimate with him. And you cannot be intimate with God. A church cannot be intimate with God unless that church is calling out to God and demonstrating complete dependence upon their father. And so this church, you think we've experienced some wonderful things right now? You think we've experienced some difficulties and hardships now? Hold on to your seat. I mean that literally. Because the best is yet to come. Because as this group of people begins to call out to God, as we become everything that Jesus envisioned for us when he hung on the cross, as we begin to call out to God in prayer and say, come Lord Jesus, change me, not just my neighbor. As we begin to invite Jesus and say, Lord, use all of me, my whole life, not just my money. I don't want to give you 10%. I want to give you 100%. That's what you gave me through Jesus. As this group of people comes together and goes into uncharted territory, I'm talking about prayer like you've probably never seen it before. It's not a Pentecostal thing. It's a biblical thing. It's not an out-of-control thing. It's an orderly thing. It's not coming with your agenda and asking God to do what you think he needs to do. It's us coming to the Lord and literally calling out to him and saying, Lord, I don't know what you want me to do. But my answer to you is yes before I even know. Because I'm not making you come through a bunch of hoops, jump through hoops, so that I approve what I think you're leading me to do. And then if it seems good to me, I'm going to do it. We follow not just the plan and the direction of Jesus. We follow Jesus who gives us and reveals his plan and direction. Once you settle that issue, the glory of God, you will get on board with wherever Jesus takes you. And guess what will happen? People will follow you. Because you're, you will be following the leader as you follow the leader. Have you not noticed as you look around, people need to follow somebody. They just need to follow somebody who's worthy of being followed. And Jesus is the same today, yesterday, and forever. He's still worthy of being followed. He's still moving. He's looking for people like you. He's looking for someone like you. I'm not sure that you really understand what I'm saying He's looking. 
And he's waiting for someone like you. Exactly like you. That he can have in full surrender. And then through that, as you surrender to him, he will change the world. How do I know it? Because that's the way God does it right here in scripture. Did you not notice that Peter is one of the 12? Now 12, we know Genesis chapter 49, the 12 tribes of Israel. It's significant that Jesus picks 12 apostles. It's significant that in Luke chapter 22, verse 30, Jesus says that you will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. The apostles are going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. The apostles are going to pick up the mantle from Jesus. They're going to pick up the baton from Jesus. After Jesus has ascended, it's the apostles. Apostles are going to carry on the mission of Jesus and plant churches all around the world. We're beneficiaries here today on the other side of the world because of the blood and the efforts, not only through Jesus, but also through the apostles. But look at these people that Jesus picked. The first one is Peter. Verse 13, when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them the twelve, whom he named apostles. Verse 14, the first one that's mentioned is Simon. He named Peter. In Mark chapter 14, look with me at Mark chapter 14, verse 50. Look at the significance here. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's been betrayed by the backstabber. Judas Iscariot has come. The Roman soldiers are there, ready to take Jesus away. And in Jesus' deepest, darkest hour, what happens? All of them, all of the twelve, every single one of them, not just Peter. Not just James and John. He's, Jesus has already been betrayed by the backstabber. The remaining 11, every single one of them. And they left. They all left him and fled. Mark chapter 14, verse 50. These guys are not just apostles. They are adept at abandonment. They know how to hit the road running with their tail between their legs. I'm getting out of here. Roman soldiers coming after Jesus, some king, some Messiah. I'm out of here. These guys are the ones that Jesus chose. Jesus didn't make a mistake on the mountain by choosing them. He didn't make a mistake in choosing you. This is the best he has to work with. Oh, I don't know how Jesus didn't get frustrated with these guys to the point of throwing in the towel and saying, forget it. How could I possibly expand the kingdom with a bunch of guys who are adept at abandonment? It's my deepest, darkest hour. Can't you pray for an hour? Watch with me and pray. Jesus goes away, comes back. What is it with you guys? My betrayer is here. And they all pick up, pick up their suitcase and they're out of there. These are the guys that God is going to use to absolutely, fundamentally change the world and shape eternity? Yes! Yes! They're all adept at abandonment. Peter seems to get the biggest, the the worst rap of all. In Luke chapter 22 and verse 54. We're familiar with this story. Jesus has been taken. They seized him and led him away. Luke chapter 22, verse 54, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. When they had kindled the fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Hold it right there. The idea here, I was in Israel back in 1996, and you'd have these common living areas. And in the middle was this courtyard with a fire pit. And I saw one like that. 
through an archaeological dig. You could see the fire pit in the center, and then people could come out of their house, maybe, you know, 10 feet, 15 feet, 20 feet away, and there would be the courtyard with the fire pit in the center, and like a, like a, a, multi, like a, a duplex or a multiplex housing complex. People could come out of their house, and they could fellowship and hang out in the courtyard. This seems to be the imagery that's being presented here. When they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, in other words, Peter has had time to contemplate his own failure. He's got an opportunity to get his boat afloat. It's sunk. He's gone down. Strike two. He has forgotten Jesus saying, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Apparently he's forgotten it. He's had an hour now to contemplate his own cowardice. A whole hour. And what does he do? He rises to the occasion this third time. It's an opportunity now for him to set the record straight. And what does he do? He rises to the occasion after an interval of about an hour. Still another insisted saying, certainly this man was also with him for he too is a Galilean. And Peter's answer, Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Jesus is within earshot of Peter. Jesus' words, the final time. The ability to make eye contact close enough. The ability to hear it close enough. Jesus turns and looks right at him. Oh, that, that must have pierced Jesus' heart. Forget about the Roman soldier's spear when Jesus is on the cross. Oh, how... After three years of investing in this man. Warning him in advance. I'm telling you before the rooster crows. You're going to deny me not once, not twice, but three times. And yet God chose Peter. Peter remembered the saying of the Lord. How he had said to him before the rooster crows today. You will deny me three times. And Peter's response in verse 62. He went out and wept bitterly. We jump to Acts chapter 2 when the day of Pentecost comes. Peter preaches that first sermon where 3,000 people recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. More than 3,000 people. Over 3,000 people Peter preaches this message. It's the same Peter. And we think, well, see, when the Holy Spirit got a hold of him, everything was fine with Peter. The thing is that the Holy Spirit needed to perpetually get a hold of Peter. If you read the book of Acts, the apostles, Peter, is filled with the Holy Spirit, not just once, as if it's a whammy and it's over and done with. He gets filled initially, and then he is filled again and again. The Apostle Paul teaches us in the book of Ephesians, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled, perpetually filled with the Holy Spirit. That's a word of character, a word of ongoing abiding. But here in the book of Acts, when it says that somebody was filled with the Holy Spirit, charged. A lot of this debate about this ridiculous discussion about Pentecostal charismatic would be just taken by the wayside because the Bible presents that you and I leak. You and I continually, perpetually need chargings by the Holy Spirit to no longer be cowards. We need God to change our lives perpetually and continually. 
It's a biblical issue. In the book of Acts, the idea is presented continually that these people who were filled initially are filled again and again and again, just like you and me. By the time you get to Galatians chapter 2, the mighty apostle has one abnormally born, Paul, has to rebuke Peter. The man who preached the sermon on the day of Pentecost with more than 3,000 getting saved. Time has passed. And what's Peter doing? The same thing he used to do. He's cowering again. He's caving in on something significant and central to the whole gospel. Whether or not you need to be circumcised as a follower of Jesus Christ. And Paul had to rebuke him. Because what was Peter doing? He was giving in to something that you never struggle with in your witness for Christ. Peter was giving in and dealing with something that is never a problem for you. Because you've settled it. Peter was dealing with peer pressure. He was still human. And he was still the one that God had chosen on the mountain. In fact, I would go so far as to say before time began, God chose Peter. God knew what Peter was going to do. It's not because Peter was all of that and a bag of Utz potato chips. It's not because Peter was all that and a bag of Martin's potato chips. Barbecued or old-fashioned kettle cooked. It was in spite of Peter, God made a choice and that was it. I mean, come on, Jesus, you're going to start a movement, right? You're going to leave, right? You're not coming back until everything is fulfilled. Then you're going to come back. You're going to entrust something that you gave your precious blood for. You're going to invest from eternity past. This whole message of the gospel throughout the Bible is being presented, and it's culminating and building and leading up to a death and a resurrection. And then you're going to let yourself get taken out of the picture, and you're going to let this be assumed by a guy like this, a coward, a guy like you. A woman like you, the fact of the matter is that this is what God has to work with. This. How about that for a laugh? The humility of God in selecting people like us who are adept at abandonment. Not courageous, but cowards. And yet it's not God taking Peter out of the picture. It's not God taking the apostles out of the picture. What if they would have said, you know what? I don't care what you say, Jesus. We've blown it. We're done. I'm taking myself out. How many of us take ourselves out of the running when God himself hasn't done that? You've got marching orders. Follow Jesus. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey Jesus the way you're obeying Jesus. Are you going to stumble at times? Of course you're going to stumble at times. Do we have time to get together for coffee or dinner where I could spend the entire time, the entire time, the entire time talking about my own failures and my own shortcomings and my own cowardices. You think it's a courageous thing for me to get up on a, on a platform here in a staged environment and to talk about Jesus? That's easy. Get me into the workforce along other people in a hostile environment and then see what happens to my courage. 
apart from the need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, charged with the Holy Spirit so that God can make me into the person I am not automatically. Have you not noticed that? Peter didn't have the courage to preach on the day of Pentecost. God had the courage. Peter didn't have the resources to get enough counseling to get him over his sin of self-protection. He needed a visitation by the Spirit of God so that when God showed up in his life, Peter was a different man. And you need the same thing. God is your answer. He's bigger than your shortcomings. You know, it's not just Peter. We have another glimpse here with James and John. Their nickname was the sons of uproar, the sons of thunder, the sons of tumult. The idea is that these guys were the life of the party, but not because they chose it. They had foot and mouth syndrome. Continually. Saying things they shouldn't have said. In fact, there's an instance right here in the Gospels. Matthew chapter 20. These guys are mama's boys. You say, what do you mean mama's boys? I'm not being disrespectful. I'm looking at the context of scripture. These guys were mama's boys in the classic sense of being mama's boys. Much has been written about how old were the disciples, and it's speculative. Were they in their 20s? Were they in their 30s? Were they in their teens? I happen to be in the camp that I think these guys were teenagers. They were not yet emancipated. They were not yet with their own families. They were still hanging out with mom. Because if you read the scriptures, look at this. Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. Look at that, 2020. How about that for clarity? Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, comes up to Jesus, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine, speaking of James and John, are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink? They said to him, indication is probably James and John, we're able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. And we're going to see for a moment, in a moment here, what that cup consisted of. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. They were ticked off because they were jockeying for position. These guys don't get it. In a time we would say, stunad, gabatost, thick-headed. They don't get it. And these are among the 12 that Jesus is going to pick, confer upon them a kingdom in which you and I are recipients and beneficiaries of their work. These are the kind of guys that Jesus has to work with. Now, the reason why I say they're mama's boys is because no emancipated individual with a wife of his own, with a family of their own, is going to have mommy coming and pleading their case to the rabbi. Think about it. Pay attention when you're reading the words of Scripture. These guys are young enough that both of them, at least one of them would have said, Hey, Mom, could you not embarrass me like this? They're letting Mommy come and make their case, and they are with their Mommy. Yeah, we could. Yeah, right and left. Can you drink the cup? Yeah, I can do it. I can drink the cup. I can do it. Well, you know what? You are going to drink. You are going to drink the cup. Acts chapter 12, we see that James is put to death with the sword. He drinks of the cup of Jesus. They weren't as successful with his brother John, the son of thunder, because as tradition has it, they tried to kill John. 
They couldn't kill John. So what did they do with John? They put him on a boat and they sent him off to this island called Patmos, a Greek island. And they thought that they had the last laugh, thinking that they'd have him in exile. The tradition says that he was boiled in oil and lived through it. So they said, we can't kill this guy. Let's get rid of him. Let's exile him to the Isle of Patmos, thinking that they had the last laugh. You know, you and I never have the last laugh. The devil never has the last laugh. Would you stop giving the devil more credit and more power and more authority and more publicity than he is due? He never has the last laugh. God has the last laugh because on the island of Patmos, God reveals himself to this John. And gives to him the bookend of the entire Bible. The 66th book in the entire Bible called the book of Revelation. God has the last laugh. And what we see here with the apostles is God moving in their lives and taking these men with all their faults, with all their warts, with all their shortcomings, with all their failures, with all their problems, with all their humanness. Humans. Human beings. People. God uses all of that for his glory. Guess what? We're the best he has in the sovereignty of God. You're his plan in the sovereignty of God. You're his choice. Did he need us? Absolutely not. For some reason, which someday we'll understand more fully when we see him face to face, it's not that he needed us to share any bit of the greatest news ever told. It's that he wants us to share. He wants his children to share in the pleasure, in the joy of laboring with him as an ambassador for Christ, as one who's sent for Christ to understand the joy of building the kingdom for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You and I are not God's backup plan. We are God's plan. On top of that, you have this guy named Thomas. We have a phrase that we use even to this day to commemorate the courageous authenticity and deep abiding faith of Thomas. The phrase is doubting Thomas. Verse 15, Matthew and Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot. John chapter 20, verse 24, Jesus has made appearances before the disciples, the apostles, the resurrected Jesus. He's been crucified, and now he's made post-crucifixion appearances. He's come back from the dead. But here's the problem in John chapter 20. Beginning in verse 24, now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told them, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, look at the precision. This is not allegory. This is not storytelling. This is historical accuracy. Eight days later, Luke wants to be taken seriously as somebody who's accounting events that actually happened. His disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Oh boy, hold on to your seat for this one, Thomas. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. You don't think Jesus hears what's going on behind closed doors? Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. 
Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So Jesus, this is one of the characters, literally speaking, that you went up to the mountain and you prayed that whole night. This is one of the guys you chose, a doubter? You mean to tell me you picked cowards, mama's boys, and doubters? Is that who you picked? That's the best you could do? Yes. That's why we need a Savior. This is as good as God can do. It's as good as it gets. You're as good as it gets. Get over it. You're God's choice. Yes, you're a coward. You're God's choice. Yes, you're a mama's boy. You complain and whine and moan and groan and grumble all the time, don't you? I don't care if you're 7 or 70 or 77 or 77 times 70 for that matter. We're all mama's boys from time to time. We're all mama's boys. And yes, you are a doubter. You will have moments of doubt in your life. You might even be doubting now. But you are God's choice. You are God's decision. You are the one among many who are in the same boat whom God is using to build his kingdom. Get over yourself, be enamored with God, and let him do in you, with you, to you, and through you what otherwise would be literally, absolutely, fundamentally impossible. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking. Worth looking.